Section 14 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1909-1912. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. State of the Union Address, William H. Taft, December 3, 1912. Part 2. The White House, December 6, 1912. To the Senate and House of Representatives. On the 3rd of December, I sent a message to the Congress which was confined to our foreign relations. The Secretary of State makes no report to the President or to the Congress, and a review of the history of the transactions of the State Department in one year must therefore be included by the President in his annual message, or Congress will not be fully informed of them. A full discussion of all the transactions of the government with a view to informing the Congress of the important events of the year and recommending new legislation, requires more space than one message of reasonable length affords. I have, therefore, adopted the course of sending three or four messages during the first ten days of the session, so as to include reference to the more important matters that should be brought to the attention of the Congress. The condition of the country with reference to business could hardly be better. While the four years of the administration now drawing to a close have not developed great speculative expansion or a wide field of new investment, the recovery and progress made from the depressing conditions following the panic of 1907 have been steady, and the improvement has been clear and easily traced in the statistics. The business of the country is now on a solid basis. Credits are not unduly extended, and every phase of the situation seems in a state of preparedness for a period of unexampled prosperity. Manufacturing concerns are running at their full capacity, and the demand for labor was never so constant and growing. The foreign trade of the country for this year will exceed $4 billion, while the balance in our favor, that of the excess of exports over imports, will exceed $500 million. More than half of our exports are manufacturers or partly manufactured material, while our exports of farm products do not show the same increase because of domestic consumption. It is a year of bumper crops. The total money value of farm products will exceed $9,500,000. It is a year when the bushel or unit price of agricultural products has gradually fallen, and yet the total value of the entire crop is greater by over $1 billion than we have known in our history. The condition of the Treasury is very satisfactory. The total interest-bearing debt is $963,777,770, of which $134,631,980 constitute the Panama Canal loan. The non-interest-bearing debt, $378,301,284.90, including $346,681,016 of greenbacks. We have in the Treasury $150 million in gold coin and a reserve against the outstanding greenbacks. And in addition, we have a cash balance in the Treasury as a general fund of $167,152,478.99, or an increase 
of $26,975,552 over the general fund last year. For three years, the expenditures of the government have decreased under the influence of an effort to economize. This year presents an apparent exception. The estimate by the Secretary of the Treasury of the Ordinary Receipts, exclusive of postal revenues for the year ending June 30, 1914, indicates that they will amount to $710 million. The sum of the estimates of the expenditures for that same year, exclusive of Panama Canal disbursements and postal disbursements payable from postal revenues, is $732 million, indicating a deficit of $22 million. For the year ending June 30, 1913, Similarly estimated receipts were $667 million, while the total corresponding estimate of expenditures for that year submitted through the Secretary of the Treasury to Congress amounted to $656 million. This shows an increase of $76 million in the estimates for 1914 over the total estimates of 1913. This is due to an increase of $25 million in the estimate for rivers and harbors for the next year on projects and surveys authorized by Congress, to an increase under the new pension bill of $32,500,000, and to an increase in the estimates for expenses of the Navy Department of $24 million. The estimate for the Navy Department for the year 1913 included two battleships, Congress made provisions for only one battleship, and therefore the Navy Department has deemed it necessary and proper to make an estimate which includes the first year's expenditures for three battleships, in addition to the amount required for work on the uncompleted ships now under construction. In addition to the natural increase in the expenditures for the uncompleted ships and the additional battleship estimated for, the other increases are due to the pay required for 4,000 or more additional enlisted men in the Navy, and to this must be added the additional cost of construction imposed by the change in the eight-hour law, which makes it applicable to ships built in private shipyards. With the exception of these three items, the estimates show a reduction this year below the total estimates for 1913 of more than $5 million. The estimates for Panama Canal construction for 1914 are $17 million less than for 1913. A time when panics seem far removed is the best time for us to prepare our financial system to withstand a storm. The most crying need this country has is a proper banking and currency system. The existing one is inadequate, and everyone who has studied the question admits it. It is the business of the national government to provide a medium, automatically contracting and expanding in volume to meet the needs of trade. Our present system lacks the indispensable quality of elasticity. The only part of our monetary medium that has elasticity is the banknote currency. The peculiar provisions of the law requiring national banks to maintain reserves to meet the call of the depositors operates to increase the money stringency when it arises, rather than to expand the supply of currency and relieve it. It operates upon each bank and furnishes a motive for the withdrawal of currency from the channels of trade by each bank to save itself 
and offers no inducement whatever for the use of the reserve to expand the supply of currency to meet the exceptional demand. After the Panic of 1907, Congress realized that the present system was not adapted to the country's needs, and that under it, panics were possible that might properly be avoided by legislative provision. Accordingly, a monetary commission was appointed, which made a report in February of 1912. The system which they recommended involved a National Reserve Association, which was, in certain of its faculties and functions, a bank, and which was given through its governing authorities the power by issuing circulating notes for approved commercial paper, by fixing discounts, and by other methods of transfer of currency to expand the supply of the monetary medium where it was most needed, to prevent the export of hoarding of gold, and generally to exercise such supervision over the supply of money in every part of the country as to prevent a stringency and a panic. The stock in this association was to be distributed to the banks of the whole United States, state and national, in a mixed proportion to bank units and to capital stock paid in. The control of the association was vested in a board of directors to be elected by representatives of the banks, except certain ex officio directors, three cabinet officers, and the comptroller of the currency. The president was to appoint the governor of the association from three persons to be selected by the directors, while the two deputy governors were to be elected by the board of directors. The details of the plan were worked out with great care and ability, and the plan in general seems to me to furnish the basis for a proper solution of our present difficulties. I feel that the government might very properly be given a greater voice in the executive committee of the board of directors without danger of injecting politics into its management. But I think the federation system of banks is a good one provided proper precautions are taken to prevent banks of large capital from absorbing power through ownership of stock in other banks. The objections to a central bank, it seems to me, are obviated if the ownership of the Reserve Association is distributed among all the banks of a country in which banking is free. The earnings of the Reserve Association are limited in percentage to a reasonable and fixed amount, and the profits over and above this are to be turned into the government treasury. It is quite probable that still greater security against control by money centers may be worked into the plan. Certain it is, however, that the objections which were made in the past history of this country to a central bank as furnishing a monopoly of financial power to private individuals would not apply to an association whose ownership and control is so widely distributed and is divided between all the banks of the country, state and national, on the one hand, and the chief executive through three department heads and his comptroller of the currency on the other. The ancient hostility to a national bank, with its branches, in which is concentrated the privilege of doing a banking business and carrying on the financial transactions of the government, has prevented the establishment of such a bank since it was abolished in the Jackson administration. Our present national banking law has obviated objections growing out of the same cause by providing a free banking system in which any set of stockholders can establish a national bank if they comply with the conditions of the law. It seems to me that the National Reserve Association meets the same objection in a similar way. That is, by giving to each bank, state and national, in accordance with its size, 
a certain share in the stock of the reserve association non-transferable and only to be held by the bank while it performs its functions as a partner in the reserve association the report of the commission recommends provisions for the imposition of a graduated tax on the expanded currency of such a character as to furnish a motive for reducing the issue of notes whenever their presence in the money market is not required by the exigencies of trade. In other words, the whole system has been worked out with the greatest care. Theoretically, it presents a plan that ought to command support. Practically, it may require modification in various of its provisions in order to make the security against abuses by combinations among the banks impossible. But in the face of the crying necessity that there is for improvement in our present system, I urgently invite the attention of Congress to the proposed plan and the report of the Commission with the hope that an earnest consideration may suggest amendments and changes within the general plan, which will lead to its adoption for the benefit of the country. There is no class in the community more interested in a safe and sane banking and currency system one which will prevent panics and automatically furnish in each trade center the currency needed in the carrying on of the business at that center than the wage earner. There is no class in the community whose experience better qualifies them to make suggestions as to the sufficiency of a currency and banking system than the bankers and businessmen. Ought we, therefore, to ignore their recommendations and reject their financial judgment as to the proper method of reforming our financial system, merely because of the suspicion which exists against them in the minds of many of our fellow citizens? Is it not the duty of Congress to take up the plan suggested, examine it from all standpoints, give impartial consideration to the testimony of those whose experience ought to fit them, to give the best advice on the subject, and then to adopt some plan which will secure the benefits desired? A banking and currency system seems far away from the wage earner and the farmer, but the fact is that they are vitally interested in a safe system of currency, which shall graduate its volume to the amount needed, and which shall prevent times of artificial stringency that frighten capital, stop employment, prevent the meeting of the payroll, destroy local markets, and produce penury and want. I have regarded it as my duty in former messages to the Congress to urge the revision of the tariff upon principles of protection. It was my judgment that the customs duties ought to be revised downward, but that the reduction ought not to be below a rate which would represent the difference in the cost of production between the article in question at home and abroad, and for this and other reasons I vetoed several bills which were presented to me in the last session of this Congress. Now that a new Congress has been elected on a platform of a tariff for revenue only, rather than a protective tariff, and is to revise the tariff on that basis, it is needless for me to occupy the time of this Congress with arguments or recommendations in favor of a protective tariff. Before passing from the tariff law, however, known as the Payne Tariff Law of August 5, 1909, I desire to call attention to Section 38 of that Act, assessing a special excise tax on corporations. It contains a provision requiring the levy of an additional 50% to the annual tax in cases of neglect to verify the prescribed return 
or to file it before the time required by law. This additional charge of 50% operates in some cases as a harsh penalty for what may have been a mere inadvertence or unintentional oversight, and the law should be so amended as to mitigate the severity of the charge in such instances. Provision should also be made for the refund of additional taxes heretofore collected because of such infractions in those cases where the penalty imposed has been so disproportionate to the offense as equitably to demand relief. The estimates for the next fiscal year have been assembled by the Secretary of the Treasury and by him transmitted to Congress. I propose at a later date to submit to Congress a form of budget prepared for me and recommended by the President's Commission on Economy and Efficiency with a view of suggesting the useful and informing character of a properly framed budget. The War Department combines within its jurisdiction functions which in other countries usually occupy three departments. It not only has the management of the Army and the coast defenses, but its jurisdiction extends to the government of the Philippines and of Puerto Rico, and the control of the receivership of the customs revenues of the Dominican Republic. It also includes the recommendation of all plans for the improvement of harbors and waterways and their execution when adopted, and by virtue of an executive order, the supervision of the construction of the Panama Canal. Our small army now consists of 83,809 men, excluding the 5,000 Philippine scouts, leaving out of consideration the coast artillery force, whose position is fixed in our various seacoast defenses and the present garrisons of our various insular possessions, we have today within the continental United States a mobile army of only about 35,000 men. This little force must be still further drawn upon to supply the new garrisons for the great naval base, which is being established at Pearl Harbor in the Hawaiian Islands and to protect the locks, now rapidly approaching completion at Panama. The forces remaining in the United States are now scattered in nearly 50 posts, situated for a variety of historical reasons in 24 states. These posts contain only fractions of regiments, averaging less than 700 men each. In time of peace, it has been our historical policy to administer these units separately by a geographical organization. In other words, our army in time of peace has never been a united organization, but merely scattered groups of companies, battalions, and regiments, and the first task in time of war has been to create out of these scattered units an army fit for effective teamwork and cooperation. To the task of meeting these patent defects, the War Department has been addressing itself during the past year, for many years, we have had no officer or division whose business it was to study these problems and plan remedies for these defects. With the establishment of the General Staff nine years ago, a body was created for this purpose. It has necessarily required time to overcome, even in its own personnel, the habits of mind engendered by a century of lack of method. But of late years, its work has become systematic and effective, and it has recently been addressing itself vigorously to these problems. A comprehensive plan of Army reorganization was prepared by the War College Division of the General Staff. 
This plan was thoroughly discussed last summer at a series of open conferences held by the Secretary of War and attended by representatives from all branches of the Army and from Congress. In printed form, it has been distributed to members of Congress and throughout the Army and the National Guard, and widely through institutions of learning and elsewhere in the United States. In it, for the first time, we have a tentative chart for future progress. Under the influence of this study, definite and effective steps have been taken toward Army reorganization so far as such reorganization lies within the executive power. Hitherto, there has been no difference of policy in the treatment of the organization of our foreign garrisons from those of troops within the United States. The difference of situation is vital, and the foreign garrison should be prepared to defend itself at an instant's notice against a foe who may command the sea. Unlike the troops in the United States, it cannot count upon reinforcements or recruitment. It is an outpost upon which will fall the brunt of the first attack in case of war. The historical policy of the United States of carrying its regiments during time of peace at half-strength has no application to our foreign garrisons. During the past year, this defect has been remedied as to the Philippines garrison. The former garrison of 12 reduced regiments has been replaced by a garrison of six regiments at full strength, giving fully the same number of riflemen at an estimated economy and cost of maintenance of over $1 million per year. This garrison is to be permanent. Its regimental units, instead of being transferred periodically back and forth from the United States, will remain in the islands. The officers and men composing these units will, however, serve a regular tropical detail as usual, thus involving no greater hardship upon the personnel and greatly increasing the effectiveness of the garrison. A similar policy is proposed for the Hawaiian and Panama garrisons as fast as the barracks for them are completed. I strongly urge upon Congress that the necessary appropriations for this purpose should be promptly made. It is in my opinion of first importance that these national outposts upon which a successful home defense will primarily depend should be finished and placed in effective condition at the earliest possible day. Simultaneously with the foregoing steps, the War Department has been proceeding with the reorganization of the Army at home. The formerly dissociated units are being united into a tactical organization of three divisions, each consisting of two or three brigades of infantry and, so far as practicable, a proper proportion of divisional cavalry and artillery. Of course, the extent to which this reform can be carried by the executive is practically limited to a paper organization. The scattered units can be brought under a proper organization, but they will remain physically scattered until Congress supplies the necessary funds for grouping them in more concentrated posts. Until that is done, the present difficulty of drilling our scattered groups together and thus training them for the proper team play cannot be removed but we shall at least have an army which will know its own organization and will be inspected by its proper commanders and to which, as a unit, emergency orders can be issued in time of war or other emergency. Moreover, the organization, which in many respects is necessarily a skeleton, will furnish a guide for future development. The separate regiments and companies 
will know the brigades and divisions to which they belong. They will be maneuvered together whenever maneuvers are established by Congress, and the gaps in their organization will show the pattern into which can be filled new troops as the nation grows and a larger army is provided. One of the most important reforms accomplished during the past year has been the legislation enacted in the Army Appropriation Bill of last summer providing for a regular Army Reserve. Hitherto, our national policy has assumed that at the outbreak of war, our regiments would be immediately raised to full strength. But our laws have provided no means by which this could be accomplished, or by which the losses of the regiments, when once sent to the front, could be repaired. In this respect, we have neglected the lessons learned by other nations. The new law provides that the soldier, after serving four years with colors, shall pass into a reserve for three years. At his option, he may go into the reserve at the end of three years, remaining there for four years. While in the reserve, he can be called to active duty, only in case of war or other national emergency, and when so called, and only in such case, will receive a stated amount of pay for all the period in which he has been a member of the reserve. The legislation is imperfect, in my opinion, in certain particulars, but it is a most important step in the right direction, and I earnestly hope that it will be carefully studied and perfected by Congress. Under existing law, the National Guard constitutes, after the regular army, the first line of national defense. Its organization, discipline, training, and equipment, under recent legislation, have been assimilated as far as possible to those of the regular army, and its practical efficiency under the effect of this training has very greatly increased. Our citizen soldiers, under present conditions, have reached a stage of development beyond which they cannot reasonably be asked to go, without further direct assistance in the form of pay from the federal government. On the other hand, such pay from the National Treasury would not be justified unless it produced a proper equivalent in additional efficiency on the part of the National Guard. The organized militia today cannot be ordered outside of the limits of the United States, and thus cannot lawfully be used for general military purposes. The officers and men are ambitious and eager to make themselves thus available, and to become an efficient national reserve of citizen soldiery. They are the only force of trained men, other than the regular army, upon which we can rely. The so-called militia pay bill, in the form agreed on between the authorities of the War Department and the representatives of the National Guard, in my opinion adequately meets these conditions, and offers a proper return for the pay which it is proposed to give to the National Guard. I believe that its enactment into law would be a very long step toward providing this nation with a first line of citizen soldiery upon which its main reliance must depend in case of any national emergency. Plans for the organization of the National Guard into tactical divisions, on the same lines as those adopted for the regular army, are being formulated by the War College Division of the General Staff. The National Guard consists of only about 110,000 men. In any serious war in the past, it has always been necessary, and in such a war in the future, it doubtless will be necessary, for the nation to depend 
in addition to the regular army and the National Guard, upon a large force of volunteers. There is at present no adequate provision of law for the raising of such a force. There is now pending in Congress, however, a bill which makes such provision, and which I believe is admirably adapted to meet the exigencies which would be presented in case of war. The passage of the bill would not entail a dollar's expense upon the government at this time, or in the future, until war comes. But if war comes, the methods therein directed are in accordance with the best military judgment as to what they ought to be, and the act would prevent the necessity for a discussion of any legislation and the delays incident to its consideration and adoption. I earnestly urge its passage. The Army Appropriation Act of 1912 also carried legislation for the consolidation of the Quartermaster's Department, the Subsistence Department, and the Pay Corps into a single supply department, to be known as the Quartermaster's Corps. It also provided for the organization of a special force of enlisted men, to be known as the Service Corps, gradually to replace many of the civilian employees engaged in the manual labor necessary in every army. I believe that both of these enactments will improve the administration of our military establishment. The consolidation of the Supply Corps has already been effected, and the organization of the Service Corps is being put into effect. All of the foregoing reforms are in the direction of economy and efficiency, except for the slight increase necessary to garrison our outposts in Hawaii and Panama, they do not call for a larger army, but they do tend to produce a much more efficient one. The only substantial new appropriations required are those which, as I have pointed out, are necessary to complete the fortifications and barracks at our naval bases and outposts beyond the sea. End of section 14.